Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Our big question was always, how do I make a deep lasting memory? And we always were focused on input is, okay, if something is really emotional, that'll lead to a deep memory or repetition, just hear something enough, that'll lead to a deep memory. But when you think about it, that actually doesn't. There are tons of things we remember that aren't emotional at all, like radio jingles. There's no mm -hmm. emotional content there, but I remember all of them. And repetition can't be everything because I, I remember a lot from school that only happened once. Like my first kiss only happened once, but I remember it. So uh, what's going on? So it turns out the key to deep memories isn't input. It doesn't matter how the information comes in. It's output. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Jared, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. No, thank you for having me on. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you. So I actually found out about you uh, because you wrote in, and it turns out that your brother is one of our listeners. Uh, and I actually was fortunate enough to get a copy of your new book, Stop Talking, Start Influencing. And I tore through this thing, highlighted and underlined it. But before we get into all of that, as you know from having heard the show, uh, I don't want to start by talking about the book. Uh, I would like to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that one or both of your parents taught you that have influenced and shaped what you've done with your life and your career? Um, I, I have to think the, the most important thing is just to keep going. Never rest on your laurels. My mom was one of those people. So when I was growing up, I used to um, be in the theater and kind of music and play instruments and stuff. And my dad was the kind of guy who, if you had a show, he'd come out, watch it, love you. And it was the best. And my mom was the other person. She'd come out, watch you and go, cool, what's next? And <laughs> at the time, man, it sucked. It was like, oh, can't you just enjoy this? And she'd say, no, no, I, I do enjoy it. But what are we, how, how are we going to build on this? What are we going to do next? And mm -hmm. it was one of those, as I got older, the more I kind of saw that driving me and just saying, all right, what's next? What's next? Mm -hmm. What's next? And now as, as much as I may have hated it as a kid, I, I see that's the only thing that's kept me kind of going as an adult now. So yeah. God bless her for that one. So, you know, you, you mentioned theater. What instruments did you play? Uh, I was, uh, <laughs> this is going to sound totally corny. I started with the accordion. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, <laughs> I wanted to be like Weird Al when I was young. And then I moved into guitar and then I started playing rhythm guitar in a band uh, for a long time. And I was lead singer for a bit, too. So kind of did some cool stuff there by the end. But it mm -hmm. was, it, I, in, I, looking back now, I was never great at any of the instruments. It was just kind of an excuse to to get up on stage um, and kind of play with other people on stage. I just really loved, like if someone was doing a musical and I could do the accordion with them while they were doing it, for whatever mm -hmm. reason, I just really loved doing that. Yeah. Uh, you know, with this idea of, of what's next coming from your parents and not resting on your laurels, what, when you were younger, did you learn about improving at something, whether that be an instrument, whether that be uh, as uh, somebody you know on stage in a play? What did your parents teach you about getting better at something that you were already good at? See, it's really trippy because that's that's kind of why I've gotten into the field that I'm in now is mm -hmm. I don't I don't remember ever being explicitly told or taught how to improve anything. It just kind of, the more you, I sat down with something. So let's say it was lines from a play, or if it was a, a piece, the more I just kind of sat with it, the better I got. And eventually I started asking myself the question, well, shoot, how does that actually 
work? Is there a process behind that? Like I, I, I just knew the more I did it, the better I got. Would there be a way to kind of make that more efficient, more effective? And mm-hmm. one thing led to another that led me into teaching. So I'd say, okay, well, let me work with students and see what I can find there. That led me into the laboratory. That led me back to academia. And so I, oddly enough, I kind of feel like my life has kind of revolved around that question of how do I get better? How do people get better? And what mm-hmm. is that process? Yeah. What did they, uh, what did your parents t- tell you about career choices? Like, what, did you have any certain guidance on that or were they like, you know, <laughs> do what you want and figure it out, you know, learn by trial and error? Uh, I, I, my father was, uh, he was in medicine. So the only career advice he ever, advice he ever gave me was don't get into medicine. That's um, so funny because, you know, if you're, if you're the children of Indian parents, the only career advice you'll ever get is go become a doctor. Get into medicine. Stat. Go do it. And it's funny. Yeah. My brother and I were both totally vehemently against it because we just saw how much he worked growing up. Um, yeah. Loved him to death. It was just when I think back, I say, I, th- I remember my mom a lot more just because he was working constantly. Um, mm. And lo and behold, so I swore, yep, I'll never get into medicine. And 28 wasn't I working at a med school. So <laughs> as much as you try and avoid it, you just kind of follow in the footsteps of your parents eventually. Yeah. What, uh, from high school to where you're at, like what has been sort of the trajectory that led you here? It sounds one of those perfect trajectories where uh, your listeners will get it. Well, when you hear it, it sounds insane, but when you're living it, it makes perfect sense. Uh Um, and so it it went from filmmaking was right out of school. Um, all I wanted to do was direct films. So I went from filmmaking then into teaching where I thought, okay, I'll have a better sense of kind of people and human beings and how they think, how they learn. Teaching then led into neuroscience, where I thought, well, can I continue this process of influence, of understanding people? Neuroscience led to psychology. Psychology led to what I call translation. Um, and that's kind of where I sit now, is, is this zone between the laboratory and the classroom. Um, and taking scientific research which on its own merit doesn't really do much because science is such a is for as much as people love it. It's such a narrow thing. The kind of research we do is so fake compared to reality that a lot of the work we do doesn't actually make sense in the real world. It's perfect in a lab. If I can control the lighting and the sound and exactly what you see, exactly what you hear, but it doesn't make any sense beyond that. So I now spend most of my time translating. How do I take scientific research and apply it back into education, into the real world, so that people can have a better influence on their students, on their family, on their children, and and kind of get the results they're hoping for with that, with the, with the work they're doing. Yeah. Have you primarily taught in uh, universities, or have you taught in in K through 12 or primary schools as well? Uh, you name it, I've been there. So I started K through 12, started um, middle school, moved to high school, ended up I do year four and five there for the last couple of years as well. Um, and then for the last then 10 years academia, and now I'm back into school. So I work with teachers or with students pretty much every day now. So that, and that's my true passion working with students right around year nine, 10. Oh, uh-huh. that's just, that's the, they're the hardest, hardest people in the world to crack through. But once you do, man, they are the best students. Yeah. What have they taught you that you think has been valuable? <laughs> that there's no use bullshitting that <laughs> they're like <laughs> the worst critics in the world in that if you're giving them something that's useless they don't hide that from you they will let you know immediately and oddly enough that's 
it, as much as it might hurt your feelings in the in the moment, that actually leads you to think deeper about topics that you're kind of just brushing over. So you can never I, I guess I'm back to my mother. You can't rest on what you know with year nine, ten. They'll mm-hmm. just keep pushing you and pushing you. And then you've got to stay up to date. and You've got to bring them the newest stuff. And so I, I just I, I it's one of the reasons why I love them. They're the harshest critics in the world. Yeah. So you've had a front row seat to education, probably more so than I think anybody that I've had here on the show to date, because I don't think I've had anybody who has not only been a lecturer in a university, but a researcher in a lab, but also worked with people in every grade imaginable. Uh, and having heard the show, you know that there's no way we're going to get out of this conversation without me asking you about this. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, so we're, we're in a situation where students are being crippled with student loan debt. Um, college is not necessarily leading to its intended outcome. And Andrew Yang, who's a presidential candidate who was here, actually said that we've overprescribed it. And you're an educator. So I wonder, from your perspective, multiple questions, okay? Why do you have two people who can go through a same system? Um, or why does the system not take into account the fact that two people are going to come through the system and be wildly different? And I can, you know, this is an example that I brought up on the show before. My sister and I, right? Both went yeah. to Berkeley. Both you know, same parents, they were awesome, not abusive, you know, worked as hard. She graduates with ridiculously high GPA. And I walk out of there barely graduating, thinking that it was a huge mistake. So how do you, you know, modify a system so it accounts for that variability? At at that level, and this is one of my big pushes here, especially over in Australia. So I live in Melbourne now, and the system is very similar to the U.S. system, uh, more so than the U.K. system. And the, the issue is exactly that, is overprescription. What happened was, for whatever reason, school started to s- stop being a grassroots community thing, and it started to become a top-down government thing. And once the purpose of education – so if, if you go back about, I would say, maybe 50, 60 years, the purpose of education – was for kids to have experiences. And then it switched into to get kids a job. And once it became about work and that stuff, then the government could come in and say, okay, here's the best way to get people employed. Here's the facts they need to know. Here's the techniques you need to use. And now we're at a stage where the biggest people in education have never stepped foot in a classroom in their lives. They're statisticians, they're psychologists, they're researchers who are telling teachers, here's how you should be doing your job without ever taking the time to figure out what that job actually is. Mm -hmm. So if we ever want to go back to school being effective for all people, it requires recognizing that teaching is a profession, that these people are experts and do stuff that no one else can do, and they need agency to be able to do it. Right Mm -hmm. now, you get fired if you don't do X, Y, Z, and that's horrible because I don't know what my kids are going to be like next semester. I needed the freedom to be able to wiggle, to move, to inspire in my way according to the context of my classroom. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's just been completely stripped away. People think yeah. – and this is the easiest way I always describe it is learning is a science. The way people learn, that doesn't seem to have changed for thousands of years. Teaching is a craft. Just because yeah. I know how somebody learns, that doesn't mean I know how to teach them. You need to let teachers do their own thing separate from the science. Let them be inspired and influenced by the science, but give them reign to make decisions. And until we get back to that stage, and right now, the the worst perpetrators of it are teachers themselves. They're so Mm -hmm. afraid of doing it wrong and getting in trouble that they're the worst at acknowledging their own expertise. 
So my big movement is, yes, how do we get the teachers back in charge? So that way they, they get a kid like you. I promise your sister was going to sur- survive academia wherever she went just because mm-hmm. it kind of resonated with her. What we need are teachers that get you in a classroom and go, cool, here's a kid who doesn't necessarily love this or want to think in this way. What can I do to bring him or her on board? And yeah. right now we just don't have that freedom. Well, you know, it, it, there's so many different ways we could go here. I was just at, at Texas A&M's business school, uh, you know, to, to, to speak to some students there. And I was talking with one of the, the deans there and we we're talking about the fact that, you know, right now education is a one size fits all solution. And yeah. if you look at and I said, look, in any other business, if customers bought your product and this was the outcome they received, you would be out of business. But in education, yep. it's, it's become acceptable. Like one, we treat education like a business, not a service in the United States. And the other thing that that I think is is interesting, this be curious from your, your standpoint here, this is, you know, so when you see somebody like Betsy DeVos as our highest ranking education official in the land, and, you know, this is not even a political argument, but when she gets on 60 Minutes and says that she's never visited a low performing school, like as somebody who is an educator, what does that make you think? Oh, it's we. I live that over here too. Our the last three education ministers in Australia uh, came out of other positions. One was a former uh, treasurer. One was the head of defense. So they it, it literally feel it felt like they were just throwing darts at a wall and said, "Okay, you're now head of education." It is the most embarrassing thing in the world to see education just becoming this top-down machine by people who don't know what the heck is going on. I was at a, a curriculum meeting. Um, this would have been about two months ago. 100 mm-hmm. people in a room all talking curriculum in the state of Victoria down here. And about 10 minutes into the conversation, I said, can we all stop real fast? Could you raise your hand if you're a teacher or have ever been a teacher? 100 people in the room, guess how many people raised their hand? Zero. Me. <laughs> and I wouldn't even <laughs> consider myself a teacher anymore because it's been so long since I've been in a classroom. And I said, don't you guys think this is kind of a problem? And so we had a little debate. About 10 minutes later, we came back and the solution. they said, nope, this isn't a problem because teachers are just levers. Teachers are tools we're using to impact students. And that, and I, at that moment, I stood up and left and I said, I'm not going to go back to one of those meetings till they're at least 50% teachers. But that's the disdain people have for education. They think it's just we're here to pump out kids who can work, kids yeah. who can get into uni, kids who can get a job. And that's not what any teacher gets out of bed for. There's no teacher I've ever met that got into this job because they really want their kids to get work. I mean, uh-huh. we care about it. It's really cool. But honestly, I've probably worked with thousands of kids in my life. I couldn't tell you what any of them do because that's not why I did my job. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've seen it. It's possible given given our conversation. There's a movie called Accepted, uh, where Justin Long is the the star of the movie, the the kid who used to be in those Mac PC commercials. Yeah. And it's a really funny movie because what ends up happening is he doesn't get into college anywhere. And so he makes up a fictitious college. Um, like he creates a website and he tells his he prints out a fake admission letter and he tells his parents, Hey, I got into the college. And they're like, great, we'll drive you there. So then he's like, shit, now I have to actually find a place to go to this college. So they they end up like finding this old abandoned mental hospital. They fix it all up. And the crazy part was that his friend accidentally made the website functional. And not only that, he made it possible for people to pay tuition. And so he opens the doors on day one and there's like 2000 people in line saying, hey, we got in here. We're here for the first day of class. 
And what's interesting is, you know, he, there's this really funny scene where he brings in Lewis Black as as the dean of his college. And it's just really, you know, he talks about how American education, the shit or all this stuff like you, know, you could probably find that the clips of it on YouTube. But, you know, he says, OK, well, you know, you have all their tuition money. What do you you know, what do you think we should teach them? And then, you know, uh, Lewis Black says, well, why don't you ask them? And what's really interesting is that they go to each student and they say, you know what? What do you want to learn about? And the one guy's like, well, I want to learn how to to basically work with flavors. And he's like, great, appropriate all this guy's tuition dollars to the culinary arts. Yeah. And yeah. and I remember, you know, I was talking when I was asking this this woman at Texas Anime, I said, look, I'm not telling you that you should go do that and overhaul a massive school. But I think that it has to start somewhere. Maybe it's a small cohort where you're like, we're doing an experimental program and that to me is always one of those things where I wonder why is that not happening? And, you know, which gets to the question, do you think large scale educational change is even possible from within a current system or does it going to have to come outside of the system? I, oh, man, two really good kind of concepts in there. The first I think I, w- I want to tackle. I remember that. Was Jonah Hill in that movie, too? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, t- I do remember seeing it. Oh, I got to go back and watch that now. When there's this idea of student agency that seems to work at a a certain level, but seems to fail before that moment. So the way we talk about it, we've we've played with this before at uni, which is kind of cool. There seem anytime you want to learn something new, you have to start with what's called surface knowledge. In, in, in essence, you have to go through the facts in order to get into the deep thinking, into the concepts, into the application. Once you give people agency, they tend to skip through the fact stage. And I don't know if that's because we have Google now or uh, I, I don't really know why, but people try to jump right into the deep end. Now, that's really cool. But what happens is, is you find these people. So we did it with medical school. We kind of let medical school students start right with problem-based learning and get a big project, get going. Takes them about four to six years to kind of get to the level of knowledge and understanding that if you just spend one year doing facts first, then it only takes two years for people to get to that level. So it's almost as if by giving them freedom from the beginning, you hinder their speed of learning. They, they get there eventually, but they but it takes them forever to kind of piece it all together. Whereas if you just spend a little time front loading, then you can really accelerate that process of acceleration. So that's so I see the point of agency. It's just you have to make sure it comes at the right time. Do it too early and you're actually making it more difficult for them. But then we go, okay, cool. Can we get to this level of change? Oh, shoot. Oh, (laughs) on a good day, I'd say yes. But on a realistic day, I'd say you notice all the changes happening outside of mainstream. Mm-hmm. There are schools that are dropping off the radar, and they're becoming either academies or out here they're called um, – oh, there's another word for it, like institutions or something, where they essentially tell the government, we don't want any of your funding. We're done. You're out. Leave us alone. And they start forging their own path. And it sucks that you have to take that leap into the unknown in order to make those decisions at this moment. But I'm also I'm working on a big thing right now is so I think you can change it from the inside. All it takes is, well, agency at the teacher level and be a threshold. Once you get a certain number of people doing a certain thing, the government has to change. The world has to adapt to you. 
Right now, school spends all its time adapting to the world. That's all it does. It says, what do you guys want? Okay, we'll change and do that. Enough. I say, look, you make a big enough decision, the world will adapt to you. Let them change. So there is one school. It's it's now the third school in Victoria. It's down about an hour east of us here in Melbourne. And last year, they just scrapped testing. Just flat out said, no more tests, no more standardized tests, no more grades, no more nothing. We're done. This isn't helping anyone learn. This is bad. And everyone flipped out. And they said, oh, how are you going to survive if your kids aren't taking entrance exams? Oh, no. It took them literally six weeks to crack deals with every university in Australia to, for them to say, OK, if a kid comes out of your school, instead of a test, they just have to write a second essay. Fine. Look at that. They made a big decision and the world adapted to them. And now the teachers are happier than they've ever been. The kids are doing great. So it's one of those, it can happen. It's just so long as one school does it at a time, eh, who cares? But if we could imagine if you could get 50 schools all at the same time standing up saying, we're all done with tests. No more tests. 50 biggest schools, we're done. Trust me, the world will say, cool. What do we got to do to make sure that works? So it can happen. It's just what's the threshold we need to get to. A couple other questions come from this. Uh, so one is one of the things that I, I distinctly remember about college. And the reason it, it is so fresh in my mind is because of something James Clear said to me in one of our conversations. So, you know, for most of us, we get to college, they give you a course catalog and they say, OK, these are your options. These are the options that have been put in front of you. And yeah. James said, you know what? Uh, none of these work for me, so I'm going to design my own major. And, and I feel like so often we're taught to educate ourselves almost as if we're making choices from a fast food menu. <laughs> that's about it. That's that's what you'll you'll find the best unis have some level of that autonomy towards the end, where mm-hmm. it'll be a fast food degree for about two years, and then they'll have fast food options for the remaining two years. But really, the six or seven kids out of a hundred that succeed are the ones who use the, what down here are called 999 courses, where essentially you sign up for whatever level, 999, and that means you're free to do what you gotta do. All you have to have is a supervisor who can check a box for you, and then you go run, do your stuff. So those, Mm -hmm. they do exist, it's just unless you know to think in those terms, no one would ever do it. And because they have the other menu options available, most people think, well, I'll just go do these. Uh, to, yeah. uh, to the smartest thing I ever did, This is it's going to sound like I'm propping myself up, but I don't mean to. But when I went, I got my master's degree from Harvard and they had a two-year course that's all laid out and they had about 50 kids intake every year. And uh, of the 50 kids in my class, 49 just did the regular thing. But I realized, look, as soon as I'm in that door of Harvard, screw you, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to learn with who I want to learn with. And there it was, a 999 course stream. So I ended up taking that. At the end of the the two years, man, I couldn't have been more happy. I was taking business courses at MIT. I was taking architecture courses. I was literally just going wild. Mm. And everyone else who took the mainstream were really unhappy with the program. They felt like they didn't learn what they wanted to. They didn't. And it was all because they were too nervous or didn't recognize that, no, no, you got to write your own ticket at some point. And believe it or not, universities will let you do that. You just got to have the nuts to get up and do it, I guess. Yeah. 
Well, I, you know, I, it's funny. I knew that you had spent time at Harvard, which inevitably that the, one of the things I have to ask you about is the college admission scandal, given we're talking about testing, given all that. <laughs> As somebody who spent time at a university that clearly is, is you know, contributed to this problem, what are your views on all of that? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> for all the people who got busted, I promise you that's how the system has been working time immemorial. It's it's there's nothing different now. It's just because they're movie stars, we can make a big deal of it. The way higher education works, it's all a a money game and it always has been. And it's always been who, you know, and it's always been family. And no one's ever really been angry at that before. We talk about legacy at university. This is essentially legacy. If I can't if my kid can get in for free without ever having to think, how is that any different than me having to pay 10,000 for my kid to get in? Um, do I think it's right? No. Do I think it's good? No. Do I think it's unique? No. <laughs> it's just part of the game. It's part of the system. So yeah. I'm uh, shame at the people who got caught, but trust me, it's still happening right now. They're just being a little more quiet about it. Yeah, like I, I remember looking at that. I'm like, well, you're rich. Why the hell not just donate a library? Like, what kind of an idiot like would do this to themselves? Yeah, just I, I think half so the story. Crazy. That's what, yeah, half the story is just the idiocy with which they tried to do these things. Like, yeah. let me get my kid in as a rower. It's like, Jesus, right. just have your kid take the test and donate to the school. They'll accept him anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny because I, I keep hearing, like, Aunt Becky going to prison. <laughs> like, this is a headline. Uh, you know, especially if you grew up watching Cole House, you just think about that. You're like, wow, okay, that is so not what we would have expected. Uh, hey, she made an appearance, too. I was on an airplane the other day. Did you know they have a new full house? Yes, I did. I do. I've never I, seen it. I well, you, you trust me, you're not missing anything. But I watched. <laughs> I watched the first episode, and they had guest appearances, and there she was. I had. She yeah. looks exactly the same. She hasn't aged. More power to her. Uh, God bless her. Now, I. You know what's what's weird though too is it, with with higher education, especially. You got to assume the people who are working at and teaching in higher education are people who are really good at school the way it normally is. Mm-hmm. And so it's, <laughs> higher education as a whole will likely never change because the people running it are the people who know that system and that game so well that they just assume that's what the rest of the world wants. So if you actually take all the universities I've ever been to, if I had to rank them in terms of actual teaching and learning, hands down, Ivy League is the worst I've ever been mm-hmm. to. It's they just they have zero real knowledge or ability to teach and zero ability to care. Their entire success is let's bring in people that we know are going to succeed in life wherever they're going to go. Regardless of our name on them. Bingo. And then let them out into the world and and take credit for that. So I I was at um, it was Cal State Northridge, I want to say. So it was was just I was doing some. <laughs> as as I do, because I I really started to nerd out in my mid twenties and would just take courses as much as I could, and that was is for as much as a school as no one's ever maybe maybe never heard of it, best teaching and learning experience of my life. Man, they cared. Those teachers were so hands on, interactive with the kids. It was the greatest learning, and it was just yeah. a no name university. So I, for the people buying their way into the high schools into the high class unis, I say you're probably not going to learn much. And the people who feel like they're missing out on learning because they didn't get in, you might be missing out on a name, but you're probably going to get better learning and teaching. So it's not it's not a yeah. bad thing. 
Well, like I said, I mean, like you've inspired me to write an entire Medium article about why education in the United States is a business, not a service. That it, 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 and that's embarrassing. You know, um, yeah, it is, is though. It's yeah. New Zealand, and I, there's another country out here. They they've just made all tertiary education, all education free. If you want to go to college, cool, we'll pay for it. Don't worry about it. And that's mm-hmm. from their lowest TAFE university to their highest class university. And that's a model where they're starting to say, okay, there's something more here. This is about experiences. This is about building human beings, not building jobs. And and the results they're getting are incredible right now. So, well, I mean, even the whole financial aid process, I think, is is borderline on predatory lending. Like you pull an 18 year old kid into a room, you basically put up a bunch of you know powerpoints on a board. You say, you know, this is what you're signing up for you know, sign on the dotted line and there'll be a refund in your bank account. Now, if they got a good fellow up there and said, hey, I'm going to break your fucking legs if you don't give me this briefcase full of money back, every student would be like, you know, I think I'll find a different way to finance this. Or I'm maybe I will. Something else. Yeah, it's it just, you know, so anyways, I've been, that's a whole other rant. But I, I think this makes a perfect segue to, to start actually talking about the book. Um, what prompted your exploration of this subject in particular? Uh, so this is where, where this book came out of was so take me to my last year of teaching. I thought, okay, I got to this level where I thought, okay, if I really want to solve learning, I've got to go back to the source, which is, and this is back when the brain was really starting to become sexy. So I thought, cool, I got to go figure out how the brain works. If I can solve the brain, then I can solve teaching, then I can fix education. Of course, that didn't really pan out. I mean, that was probably 15 years ago I made that jump. And it turns out once you learn about the brain, that doesn't really solve teaching questions. And that's where I learned learning and teaching are very different things. Mm. But that's that then pushed me into this idea of translation, this concept of cool. Can I take knowledge of learning, these learning principles, and make them applicable for teaching, for people who want to influence? If I know somebody learns like this, how might that influence how I teach them, how I speak to them, how I present to them? And so this book is kind of the first culmination of my translation work, taking Mm -hmm. science, making it accessible and making it applicable outside of the laboratory as much as possible in the real world. So I I had such a good time writing it, but who knows? Hopefully it it makes sense. (laughs) I mean, it sounds to me like effectively what we're talking about here is how to transform information into knowledge and wisdom. And that's I think a lot of people don't and scientists are the worst at acknowledging this. They don't recognize that that's we're knowledge generators, but that's not really wisdom. We can generate facts like nobody's business. But when you think about it, the best scientists aren't the ones who are just generating data. They're the ones who turn it into a story, who make it meaningful. As much as I I, I, I had to debate against this. So my, my big culminating science project, and this is going to be another 10, 15 years, is going to be to to kind of reposition science for what it's really doing as opposed to what the world thinks it's doing. Um, for whatever reason, people think all the answers are going to come out of science. And it's like, no, <laughs> the answers to the questions we ask are going to come out of science, but that doesn't mean the questions we ask are meaningful in the real world <laughs> at all. So don't don't make that mistake. But yeah. I, 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 all the people that I really disliked in science when I was young, as I got older, are the people I started to realize, well, they're probably the best scientists because they're the only ones taking numbers and stats and making them applicable and meaningful and changing people's lives with them, whether that's good or bad. And like I, 
probably my least favorite. This is going to be, I piss off some people here, but my least favorite person in the world academically is Richard Dawkins. I just think the guy's a freaking idiot and he's mean and he's cruel and he's not a nice human being. But when I pull back, I go, but he's actually doing really good science. As much as he's not doing research or generating data, he's weaving a story that's really changing how people think and act. So love him or hate him, that's what good science does. And that's where I decided I I wanted to take my work is to see if I can make it, like you said, wisdom as opposed to just facts. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, let, let's actually get into this, because I know you have 12 key concepts, uh, n- a number of which I have here right in front of me. You said, you know, there are three major areas of a brain that allow us to understand oral speech. You talk about the auditory cortex, the Broca-Wernicke network, and the bottleneck. And I, I wanted to talk about this specifically because people are listening to you and I uh, have an, or, you know, an oral conversation. So, like, what is happening um, while they're listening to this? So perfect, perfect right now with my voice going. So the first part of your brain to light up when you're listening to somebody speak is are these just big swaths of your brain behind your ears. So, of course, that's where sound is being processed. But once that sound is speech, all of that gets funneled into this really small network um, on the left side of your brain. For If you're left handed, it'll be on the right side. But for most of us, it's on the left side of our brain. So this is why you can hear just picture. I always say if you're in a very crowded pub. You can hear all the voices going off. You've got enough brain to hear the noise, but then you can focus in on one person speaking because you can take that voice, take it out of your auditory network and shovel it into this little language area in that one spot of your brain. Now, the problem is you only have one of those little language areas. So that's why you can really only listen to one person speaking at a time. So if you and I both started telling a story simultaneously, people could hear our voices but they'd have to focus on one at a time. They could listen to my words, in which case you just become noise, or they'd listen to your words and I just become noise. Now, this is all cute and fun and good until you think, okay, well, how rarely do we have multiple people speaking simultaneously? Like I've never been to a classroom where there's two professors both telling different messages at the same time, so who cares? But that's where you then go, okay, what happens when you read or take notes? And if you notice, if you pay attention, kind of pull your voice, your attention back, you notice you've got a silent reading voice and a silent writing voice. So as you're reading words, you're saying them, essentially. And unfortunately, as far as your brain is concerned, your silent voice is processed exactly the same as an out loud voice. So if you're trying to read while listening to somebody speak, just like you can't hear two people speaking at the same time, you can't do that. You got to do one or the other. You got to either pay attention to the reading or the speaker or jump back and forth and miss information from both. And it's the same thing while taking notes. So now you start to go, okay, well, if I'm in a lecture or if I'm giving a presentation and I've got a slide with a bunch of words on it, a PowerPoint, or I've got a handout that's just information, bad news. My audience literally cannot do both at the same time. They can't read my slides while listening to me speak. They've got to choose one or the other. And 90 some, I think the last measure was 93% of people will choose to read your slides instead of listening to you. So (laughs) once you recognize this kind of learning principle that human beings cannot read and listen simultaneously, you start to recognize how often you put people in that position and you start to recognize how obsolete you make yourself. You Mm -hmm. can't influence somebody when you're forcing them to do something they can't do. 
Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show yeah. is absolutely yeah. incredible. Or anime. Yeah, and under this sure. mask is another mask. <laughs> <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. 
Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's funny you say that because like I, you know, I, I every, you know, because I do a lot of, of speaking engagements and people are like, can you send me the slides? And I'm, I always say, yes, I'll send you the slides, but fair warning, they're going to be completely useless because they're just a bunch of pictures and they're not going to tell you anything. And it, it's, you know, amusing. You're right. I mean, I, I learned that from Gar Reynolds and uh, from, from his book, Presentation Zen. And from that point forward, that became my standard for how I did slides for my talks. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I think that, you know, one of the things you mentioned two things when, when you talked about images and text, you know, you said when we read a small number of highly familiar words, then we can bypass vocalization and instead directly access their meaning for this reason, including a very small number of keywords on each slide might not interfere with anyone's ability to listen to your speech. So we're talking about that in the context of of slide design in speeches. But let's say that I want to apply that to, for example, a blog post. Would you suggest it, my guess is that's why we use things like headers and stuff to break up text. But it, it based on that advice, how would you suggest somebody format a blog post or an article on the Internet? So I think that's good is you, you reach a, a, another issue here with kind of reading online. So yeah. you, text on its own, totally fine. So you, if you if I've got a blog, cool. All I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure each blog post stand on its stands on its own. It's got headings, like you said, because what that's going to allow people to do is start to anchor information to unique points. So mm -hmm. let me let me kind of pull back. If you compare com reading on a computer to reading a hard copy something, people always learn more from hard copies. And the only reason we can figure that that's happening is because it's a very static piece of information till the end of time the words in a book are going to be in that same exact position. It, halfway through the book, on the left side, two lines from the top will always be the word the. So now you can start to link information to a location. And later, when you want to remember that information, you can use that location as a cue. You can go, okay, I remember reading about that about halfway through the book, uh, and that can help you bring info back online. Mm -hmm. If you go to a computer, all of a sudden, information no longer has a, a static place. It starts with the same words are at the bottom of your screen, and then they, they're at the top of your screen, and then they're moving to the left or right, you shrink them. Once you lose space, you lose the ability to form the, those memory kind of landmarks based on that, and it makes mm -hmm. it harder for you to remember and learn. So when it comes to blogs and web design, you have to think, okay, if I can't use space as an anchor, how else can I anchor this information? What else can I help people tie that knowledge to so that they can recall it later a little bit more easily. And so there's where things like you're now you're saying, cool, headings give you really easy anchors. If you have images embedded within the text so that don't kind of stay on the screen at all time that move with the text, uh -huh. those can become anchors. I remember reading that next to the picture of the cat, boom, and it will always be there. Uh -huh. um, so the more you can kind of keep things static and anchored, the easier yeah. it becomes to remember, as opposed to, because I've been seeing a lot of websites now have um, kind of bars on the side that move with the text. So you can mm -hmm. never anchor anything to those. So those become essentially useless for learning. And they also have kind of overlaid ads that go over the text, which now you have to ask yourself, cool, if I've got an ad going over text and people can't read and listen simultaneously, oops, I've just asked the impossible and now I'm going to kill learning in this moment <laughs> as well. So try and wow. keep it, try and keep your blog just totally clean and your blog yeah. and as much as you can anchor things around it. 
Well, it's interesting because like I, I use this SEO plugin. One of the common comments when I've been going through and optimizing this thing, it's like an AI-based plugin called SEO Presser. And every one of the common comments is, oh, there's not your text to image ratio is out of whack. Uh, like that apparently improves readability significantly. Text. What is? Can you give me a little bit more? What do they think? Yeah. Well, they say that you know you need to break up the text with images because a wall of text apparently is really hard to read. But whereas if you start to add images, it actually increases your score. It, it, uh, okay. it, it helps people break. But what's weird is you can you'll find hard copy people can go blocks of text all yeah. day. Think of a book. Yeah, exactly. So, but I we think that that's the like you were saying the page turn and the location are what break that up are what allow us to kind of breathe. Whereas if you've ever seen, I was in New York. It was about six years ago. They had uh, Jack Kerouac's on the road at the museum, and I guess he had written that. I didn't know he'd written that as a scroll. So it's one long. It's it wasn't a book. It was one long piece of paper. Wow. And that's where you start to see that in that instance, man, that would have been a, a nightmare to try and read. So the page yeah. breaks in a book probably help, which means digitally, if you're just scrolling, probably not good. If you can break it up with images, that makes mm -hmm. a whole lot of sense. So uh, speaking of uh, images and text, one thing that you, you talked about it, uh, here was was note taking. You said you, know, you divided it into two categories uh, called shallow and deep. And you said when taking deep notes, the goal is to make sense of and organize the words being spoken in order to derive a deeper meaning. Study after study has revealed, though, that even though deep note taking might trigger the bottleneck and lessen the overall amount of information taken in during a presentation, it serves to strengthen the understanding and memory of those ideas noted down. So yeah. rather than have you expand on the concepts, what I wanted to do is frame this in a tactical example. So there are two places where I wonder how I might apply this. One is um, for people listening to this podcast, say they wanted to take notes. How would you suggest they apply this? And then, you know, I know that there's a section on retrieval, which we'll get to. But one of the things that I do after, you know, so every time I read a book, um, I'll read the book. And part of the reason I can, I can recall all this stuff is, is because it's right in front of me. So I'll read a book. I'll highlight and underline a bunch of stuff while I'm reading. And then I'll come back and I'll actually take all of my notes and I'll put them into Notion. Like I have what I call a personal knowledge base. We even did an entire interview about this called How to Build Your Second Brain. Um but I wonder, you know, from the perspective of your knowledge base and, and what you what you know about this, um, how would you suggest I, I take, you know, how could I improve that process is really the question. So this is this is great. I, I love. So go back to when you're taking notes while you're reading, that's going to be one thing. So let me kind of pull back and go, OK, where were most people were taking notes? So let's say when they're listening to this, they're viewing this kind of as a learning podcast and they're taking notes as they're going. When you're writing something down, you necessarily have to translate that into speech, which means just like you can't read and listen simultaneously, you can't write and listen simultaneously. So if you're taking notes as you're writing that information down, you're necessarily losing information from us. Whatever words we're saying at the time are gone. But we know that when you're taking notes, you're learning that material better. So you might be learning less, but you're learning stronger. So you've got to kind of play that against itself and go, OK, is it worthwhile to take notes? So I always say rule one, only take notes when you know there's a big idea or concept, something that you think is really important. A lot of people take notes just kind of willy nilly as much information as they can get down. Nope. Stick with the people, stick with the, the speaker, stick with the lecturer until there's a huge enough idea that you're willing to go. Cool. I'm going to lose a bit of information, but I really want to lock this one down. Rule two, always take notes by hand, always. Um, and the reason being that if you take notes on a computer, you can typically type 
as fast or just slightly slower than I can speak. So you can take a lot of content down. But when you're taking down content, the only thing of importance is the sound of the words themselves. So when you're trying to type out verbatim what I'm saying, all that matters is the words themselves and their order, which means you're only listening to noise. You're not actually paying attention to meaning. If you take notes by hand, you can't write anywhere near as fast as I can speak, which means by definition, you have to already be processing that information. You have to be making sense of it in order to have the time to go write it down. And that's why handwritten notes have lines and circles and arrows and stars. That's a sign that you're processing that information as meaning, not simply as noise. So rule two, always take notes use it by hand, just write. And then rule three, kind of what, what I think you just nailed, is let's say you're doing your reading and you're highlighting and you're kind of underlining and you're finding the key bits you want. Now the next thing you've got to do is you've got to do something with that information. Like you just said, you've got to now transcribe that. But rather than writing it down verbatim, just coming back and writing out sentences, the more you can change that into your own words, rewrite it into a different meaning, take all the underlying bits and create a paragraph out of it or a summary. That kind of work deepens the understanding as well. Because again, now you're taking, you're moving from simple words into mm-hmm. meaning, into purpose, into linkage. So if you go back to take notes or wait to, till an end of a lecture or wait till a day after a lecture and just say, cool, I'm going to spend 10 minutes pulling out as much information as I can from my brain and seeing what I remember. That's the deepest learning you're going to do. You want deep memories? That's yeah. it right there. But it's, it's funny because as you're saying that, I literally thought, oh, you know what? Now I'm going to write a blog post titled how to you know, take notes uh, on the information that you consume. I, lo- I love it. It's fan- it's and I'm going to quote silly. what you just said. <laughs> Literally, Bring I'm going to take this. Tra- I think a lot of I'm people, yeah, they, they, that. they bring yeah. out the kind of these these systems. Like I, I was looking online one day, and so people have note-taking systems where it's like, put the left side of your page, put this. On the right side of your page, do this. And that's fine. It doesn't bother me at all. But once you recognize the why, why are these things so important? Well, step one, you're losing information, so pick and choose your battles. Step two, when you handwrite, why is that so important? Because you're necessarily taking a look at meaning as opposed to just noise. And step three, recall, that's what leads to deep memories. Once you have the why, you can build your own note-taking system. You don't need to divide your page left to right. You can if it helps. But once you get the the principles, then you can kind of run with it and agency, make it your own. So there Two other concepts here. You talk about space and context, right? You said when you can actually predict where in space information is likely to occur, you spend less time and energy interpreting that information. The other thing you said, each time we, we learn a new piece of information, it's strongly tied to the specific context in which the learning occurred. In yeah. other words, all new memories begin as episodic, which makes me think, oh, wow, like if I go to certain locations, for example, like part of me wonders is like my brain, I think, is anchored to the uh, to the idea that, oh, when I sit down at this desk at six o'clock in the morning, there are only two things I do at this desk. One is read. The other is write. And th- which is perfect. If that's all you ever want to do at that desk, go to town. Well, but mm-hmm. what, what tends to happen is you'll find you might find it harder to access some of your writing skills or some of your yeah. writing knowledge elsewhere so if you decide you're at a, a pub one day and you're like i just want to sit down and write for an hour yeah, you might yeah. find it a little trickier than you would at that desk so uh-huh. we it, and this is this is one of those few subconscious processes in the brain for as much as marketers and advertisers like to talk about the subconscious it's not <laughs> it's not 
as big a deal as most people make it out to seem. Like I read yesterday, somebody said 95% of our decisions are subconscious. And I just kind of giggled. I'm like, A, how the hell would you ever know that? B, how do you define subconscious or decision making? Like, does my deciding to start walking using my left foot instead of my, is that a decision? Or you just say, like, we, we tend to ascribe way too much uh, uh, importance to subconscious. And the mm-hmm. idea being, especially, is if I can point it out, congratulations, it's not subconscious anymore. So, yeah. But this is one of those few processes where wherever you're doing your learning, in the back of your brain, the context, the environment you're in starts to get linked into that memory, whether or not you're paying attention to it. So if you're uh-huh. reading a book in a red room, Red Room becomes tied to your memory of that book. And so does all your internal feelings, too. So if you're happy, that becomes tied to it. If you're hungry, that becomes tied to it. And what happens is, is if all your memories are made in that context, then later down the track, when you're in that context, it becomes a lot easier to access those memories simply because you can use those subconscious cues. Mm -hmm. So if you know, I always say, if you know where you want to apply a certain skill or set of information, you might as well lock it down to that context. So if I know, you know, I got a test next Friday, well, good. I'm doing all my studying in that room on that desk under the same pressure with the same gum in my mouth. So come Friday, boom, it's just all there. It's all context. But if I want to learn something a contextually, so like basketball, I want to be good everywhere. Then you have to do your best to strip context out of it, which means you have to practice in the morning. You have to practice at night. You have to practice outside. You have to practice inside when you're hungry, when you're thirsty. The more varied context you can throw into your memories, the easier it becomes to start to transfer and move that skill across. So again, yeah. it's, it's, it's neither good nor bad. It's just once you know the principle that the context becomes an integral part of the memory, then you can choose how you want to use it. Cool. Do I want to tie a context to it or do I want to strip context away from it? And then that can guide how you practice, how you learn. Mm. So – what I wonder, you know, is since we're talking about context and space, is why is it that we tend to get, you know, really profound creative insights in unusual places? Like many of my best ideas, everybody knows, comes from either when I'm in the water surfing or on a day on the mountain snowboarding. I'm like, okay, I'm not really thinking about, you know, writing, but a lot of my ideas for what I want to write about often are the result of a day on the mountain. Like, yeah, why does that happen? Um, dual reasons that we think, well, I get easiest answer is no one is certain yet, but there's two, two things we think. One is (laughs) when you access a fact or an idea, so you pull it up into conscious attention. So like, I want to think about, cool, I want to write something. What could I be writing about? What could I be writing about? Now you change your focus and you go do something else that we call kind of autopilot. So in this case, I'm guessing you're a good surfer. Yeah. I'm above average on a decent day. So it's not like you'd learn. So imagine me, like I've I've never been on a surfboard. So if I go from thinking about writing into surfing, Mm -hmm. it's going to require so much energy and conscious attention for me to learn how to surf that that's it. All I'm focused on is the surfing. But you get into a sweet spot like me and driving like I, I this. That's my example. I can drive when I'm driving. My God, I don't have to pay attention to anything. I could drive for an hour, come park my car and be like, I don't even know where I went. Because it's just so autopilot. Yeah. So if you access a thought, push it to the back of your mind, and then enter into an autopilot program, something you can kind of do automatically, we think what starts to happen is the autopilot kind of takes your attention but allows you to continue to chug on that question without consciously focusing on it. 
So even though you don't think you're thinking about it, you're still pondering, what am I going to write about? Even though your autopilot is now saying, let me take an, enough energy to let you surf. Mm-hmm. So even though you're, you're not consciously sitting down thinking about the question, the question is still being churned in the background and it pops up at the most at the craziest time. You're catching a wave and boom, there's the answer I was looking for. Cool. The next reason we think why that happens is, is once you're in autopilot, you enter what's called a flow state. So when you're in flow, have you heard of flow before? Yeah, of course. We've had Stephen Kotler here multiple times. So, Oh, perfect. So neurologically, we think what's going on with flow state is typically you can only take in so much information and then you have to transfer that to another network and then you come back kind of to the present and then you transfer that. So you kind of take information in in chunks and then move them back. In a flow state, we think you don't have to do that. All information coming in immediately goes back into the back of your brain. So there's this just easy movement from in to out, in to out, and you don't have to take time to process. And we think in that flow state, what's going on is because everything is communicating to everything else so efficiently, that's also why your problem or your question is being churned as well. And it's being solved in that moment too. All input, all output is kind of being funneled through that question, whether you're focused on it or not, and something always pops out of it. So we always say, yeah, if you're ever struggling with an idea, go do something else. If you can enter into a flow state, almost all the time you'll solve that question without even knowing you just did it. So we beat the whole multitasking and social media thing to death on the show. So, uh, you know, I, I think your research on that to me was kind of like, OK, a lot of this is, is not news. I mean, you know, the cost of time, accuracy and memory. So uh, yep. for the sake of, of time, I, I want to go into some of the other concepts. Uh, no worries. So I think that there were two that struck me, this idea of interleave and error, you know, when, so you said, you know, with interleave, nearly every action we undertake is constructed from a well-organized sequence of smaller complete actions. So how does that translate to what you and I are talking about here? Like, how does that become relevant? So we start to to take a look at, now this is, go back to earlier when you're talking about practicing while you're learning. So you know you're good at something, how do you practice it? Well, the brain's natural inclination is going to be the more you practice something, the more it's going to do what's called chunking. It's going to try and pull that together into one thing. So right now, when when I first started learning how to tie my shoe, it was a bunch of different motions. Grab laces, put right over left, tuck right under left. But the more I do those actions in sequence, the more my brain says, cool, let's just turn that into one thing, shoe tying chunk. Now, as soon as I pick up my laces, the program runs out automatically. This step, this step, this step, boom, I'm done. So the brain looks for anything we do in sequence. It tries to tie it together and turn that into one program. So now this is good. We can leverage the hell out of that. If we know that there's something that, like shooting free throws, we can turn that into one chunk. Or if I'm doing a play where I always know scene two is going to come after scene one, I better practice in order as much as I can to build a chunk. But sometimes you, we get our butts kicked with that. So like, take something like golf. When I'm uh-huh. actually out on the course, I you never know what the hell is going to happen. I might go from a driver to a nine iron to a putter to a th- three iron on the next. Like it's it's chaotic. But when I practice golf, I always go to the range and I always do the same thing: driver, uh, three iron, five iron, nine iron, putter. Yeah. So unfortunately, my practice in this case was building a large golf chunk, where in my brain, you always start with a driver, you always move to the three, you always move to the five, boom, boom, boom. So I was practicing in a way that once I got onto the course, it was actually harder for me to perform because I had to somehow break that chunk. I had taught myself uh-huh. one chunk 
And now I had to go, uh oh, but that doesn't actually matter. Uh, crack it. And it's really hard to break chunks. And so just try and break down your shoe tying. Once mm-hmm. a chunk is made, it's real hard to crack. So this is where you start to learn cool. Can I align my practice with how I actually want to perform it? And if I want to perform chaotically or unpredictably, then I need to practice in a way that doesn't force me to build big chunks. And so that's mm-hmm. what, what interleaving is, is it says rather than kind of blocking your practice and doing uh-huh. everything similar, do this, then this, then this, mix and match skills, always bounce them up. And while you're practicing, you're going to feel totally confused. But once you go into a performance setting that's chaotic, you're going to do much better than if you just lock down your practice into one consistent thing. Yeah. Well, it's funny to listen to you describe that uh, is literally the exact process of standing up on a surfboard, right? Because you go out and you take a surf lesson. And it's funny because, you know, I wrote about this in my first book. I said, you know, you'll get a land lesson where the instructor will be like, all right, pretend you're paddling in the water push your hands up like this, put your foot here and push yourself up. And of course you get in the water and the whole land lesson is completely fucking useless um, <laughs> because, you know, like you're in water. It's a, you know, you're not on the sand. But what's interesting is I've had friends who've asked me to teach them and I can't, I have such a hard time deconstructing that because it's been so long that when I'm in the water, that sequence of steps happens as exactly as you're describing in a chunk. It, it, this is now, go go back to education. This is why some teachers are so ineffective at teaching, especially at university level, is you got to think they've gone through the process of learning, but right now their knowledge, their expertise is so locked down, is so organized and so chunked that when they need to come back to a beginner and teach it to them, uh, I don't really know how. Don't you just see that this is the way this world works? And no, they don't see it that way. So the, yeah. the idea of having to break down a chunk is is one thing that makes experts can make them such horrible teachers. Like like you just said, it just it's so hard for us to access how did yeah. we build that knowledge in the first place. Yeah. So let's talk about error and recall. I think that the thing that struck me uh, in the section on error, and it's funny because I was literally just writing about this this morning about how to use the progress principle to stay motivated. And I said, you know, one of the you mentioned this whole idea, but you said outcome orientation stresses the importance of the finished product and runs according to a success reward system. This often leads to the personalization of error and can foster risk aversion, peer competition and isolation. Conversely, process orientation stresses the importance of effort, failure, growth and mastery. But we live in a world that's incredibly outcome oriented. Schools give yep. students grades. People basically, you know, know that climbing the corporate ladder, whatever it is, they measure their success. So how do you, I guess the real question is, how does a person make the shift from being outcome oriented, particularly because that is so deeply embedded in, in you know, how we're wired and what we're taught from our parents and from the world around us to becoming yeah. process oriented? Um, it, Honestly, in most contexts, most situations, they don't and they shouldn't. I, I always tell my uh, – the schools I work in, one of the big things is resilience. Their kids aren't okay with failing. Their kids aren't okay with errors. And they always ask, how do, I, how do we make them okay with it? And the only conceivable answer is change the context. They'd be insane not to worry about failure when they know if they fail, they're going to be held back a year or they're not going to be allowed back in your school. So we've <laughs> – We've built a world that says you have to be outcome oriented, and but then at the same time we try and tell people don't be. So I I always say look, most of the time outcome orientation is totally fine and totally required by the world we built for ourselves. If you are interested in moving into process out, uh, orientation, 
then the one thing you have to do is you have to depersonalize errors. You have to when an error occurs, our natural inclination is to see how does this impact me, how does this reflect me, my abilities, and my ability to grow. And uh, as I said, that is what the world has told us to do. So totally fine. But if we want to depersonalize them, then we have to recognize, cool, an error is literally part of the learning process. It is the fastest and easiest way to access what we call coder mode, which is when the whole system activates into a pattern that says, cool, let's update, let's learn, let's physically change. Get the, get the brain in a state that says, let me physically change and adapt to what you're trying to, to do. You need to be able to embrace that error not see it as personal and go, cool, I'm going to live in this coder mode for a while and let the income or let the incoming information change my brain. Um, and you, you'll notice people will do it, even even though the world is very alchem oriented. When people go and do their passion projects, they're fine with it. Like mm -hmm. I, I paint. I don't give a shit. Well, oops, sorry about that. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if anyone ever sees my paintings. I'm doing it for myself. So every time yeah. I screw up, I get pissed. I go into that uncomfortable learning mode. But right. I stick with it and I keep going until I come out the other side. It's like, oh, that was good. But yeah. I won't do that in academia because if I take the time to do it, I'm probably going to lose my job. So yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I'd say depersonalization is how you make that switch. But don't be so quick to embrace that if you're in mm -hmm. a context that won't let you do it because it might be unsafe to do so. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really kind of my writing process in a nutshell that you've described. Uh, so you talk about recall as well, right? You said within yep. the human brain, retrieval is constructive. This means every time you retrieve a memory, it becomes deeper, stronger, and easier to access in the future. An easy way to visualize this is to imagine each of your memories as a small hut within a dense jungle. Now, the thing I wonder is, you know, so let's let's just use the the podcast as an example. So somebody is listening to this conversation you and I have. Um, what you know? How would they apply the the principles of recall that you have dissected in this book. So we used to, yeah, we, we, our big question was always, how do I make a deep lasting memory? And we always were focused on input is okay. If something is really emotional, that'll lead to a deep memory or repetition. Just hear something enough that'll lead to a deep memory. But when you think about it, that actually doesn't, there are tons of things we remember that aren't emotional at all. Like radio jingles. There's no mm -hmm. emotional content there, but I remember all of them and repetition can't be, everything because i i remember a lot from school that only happened once like my first kiss only happened once but i remember it so oh what's going on so it turns out the key to deep memories isn't input it doesn't matter how the information comes in it's output it's how are you accessing it every time you pull information out that memory becomes deeper so the reason we remember emotional things more isn't because they went in differently it's because we tend to think about them more later. And every time we access it, think about it, it becomes better. I always, it's Game of Thrones. I've watched Game of Thrones once, but I could tell you everything about it because I talk about it constantly. I'm uh -huh. always accessing information and debating characters and facts. And every time I think about it, that memory becomes deeper. So when it, if, you, if you're really interested in learning and forming deep memories, it's what are you going to do with that information? How are you going to pull it up later? So listening to this podcast, rock and roll. What I'd say, if you, if you really want to remember it, and there's some things that you really want to hold on to, tonight before you go to bed, sit down and spend two to three minutes and just pull ideas up. Don't come back to the podcast. Just pull out what you remember. Access those memories. Tomorrow, spend five minutes. Do it again. Tell somebody. Teach somebody else what you learned from this show. 
debate somebody about one of these topics. All of that is going to force you to access this information, is going to make it deeper, and actually going to allow it to start having an impact on your thoughts, on your behavior. Pull it up, pull it up, pull it up, however you got to. Wow. All right. So let's talk about uh, story and, and priming. I think the, the story piece was really interesting to me because you, know, you said that stories are like mental Eiffel Towers. They create prominent, indelible impressions within our minds, making them ideal memory landmarks around which to construct and organize association networks. And then the other thing you said is when people begin to recognize how various concepts are reflected in their own lives, they begin to personalize narratives. This in turn can boost motivation and ultimately deepen learning. As such, it's never a bad idea to encourage others to share personal stories that reflect and relate the information being explored. Uh, you know, and I read all of that. And I was like, yeah, that's why we ask the weird questions that we do at the beginning of the show, because there's no way you can answer that question without telling a story. And, you know, I get a vicious review, uh, you know, I, I very rarely read reviews, but one of them criticized me for sharing personal stories on the show. Like that, the, the, you know, this guy just sounds like he's whining in every episode, really? which was interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was one episode in particular, but I, I was like, okay, but it was relevant to the thing that the concept that, you know, we were talking about. You want to, you want to learn any fact based or somewhat uh, tangential information. You have to narratize it. And if you can personally narratize it, that's how you remember it. That's a, the, it, turning facts into personal stories is not – it's not whingy or whiny. That is how we learn. I, I can't believe – yeah, it's, so it, it turns out – so you got to think about most fields are just facts, and they're disorganized facts. And what you have to do is somehow tie the facts together into coherence in order to use them as wisdom as opposed to just facts. And the easiest way to do that, now you can just tie facts together by learning them well enough and thinking about how they fit, cool. But it's a lot easier if you just have a narrative that has all those facts embedded within it and naturally ties them all together. So I could teach you the Pythagorean theorem, or I could teach you why the very first group of people invented the Pythagorean theorem. And once you know why they did it, it becomes a ton easier for you to remember it because you know what purpose it was serving. So yeah, mm. narratives uh, in terms of learning and memory, narratives are key. But mm. also in terms of connection. So if you're looking at influence, what happens is is the more you can can kind of narratize and find a story behind the facts, what happens is your audience will start to what we call um, sync with you. They they show n neural resonance with you, which means if I could take a picture of your brain as the teacher or the presenter. And their brain as the audience, they'd start to look incredibly similar. And that's how you know you can feel it when you're in a room teaching and you just get that buzz where it's like the room is there. Literally, it's because they are thinking almost exactly like you in that moment. They yeah. feel safe around you and they start to not just learn from you, but they learn like you in those moments. And you can take them wherever you want to. So they're not only good for memory, but they're also good for connection with audience and then driving them how you want to through a topic. So let's get into the last part of this. Um, you mentioned distribution, which I thought, you know, this it's funny when I looked at this, it, it was like, oh, this is how I, I teach people to write. This is how people should do an instrument. You say, you know, put simply, if practice is being broken up and distributed over an extended period of this extended period, this will lead to longer lasting memories than if the same amount of practice is crammed into a single sort of long time session. Yep. And yet students cram for exams. We still work an eight hour work day. Uh, like, how do you change people's narrative around this? Because it seems like, you know, sustainable effort over an extended period of time is a much better way to do almost anything. It's it, it, there's 
of all the rules. So we, if you take science, right, you can have some things that are laws, but most of the laws are stuck in, in physics and, and biolo- biological realms. The idea being that there's a lot less that can go wrong and it's kind of A leads to B all the time. Cool. Simple systems. Learning is one of the more complex systems, which means we'll never have a law. A will not always lead to B in human beings. With that said, the only thing we've ever seen in learning that we think is a law is that, is distribution, spacing, is the more you can spread practice out, the better you're going to get at that thing. Same amount of practice, five hours of practice spread over five days, you'll always do better, like 60% better than five hours in one day. It's the only thing that we, we see it in plants and bugs and animals. It's everywhere we look. So the thing I always do to try and get kids and students and people to recognize it is I just introduce them to the forgetting curve. Love it or hate it, the way the brain works, you will forget 80% of everything you learn today within the next three days. And that's never going to change. Every day you live, 80% of it you can wipe away because it ain't going anywhere. So that means the more you try and cram into one day, cool, if you're banking on learning all your information in one day, bad news, you're going to lose 80% of it. But if you spread it out and you lose 80% every day, cool, chances are you're going to have a much better chance of pulling that information back online and not losing it when you go to bed that night. So Mm -hmm. once you recognize that you don't have a choice, you're going to lose most of what you learn every day, you learn to start spreading your time out because it gives you a better chance to actually learn and deepen that information. So we'd be better off reading a book in like five or six sittings than we would to sit down and read the whole thing in one sitting. Oh, absolutely. It, it, and you'll notice it, too. If you binge watch a TV show, you mm-hmm. probably enjoy it. Yeah. But if you think about it, the next week, you remember the big bits. Oh, there was a dragon. There was a fight. But you don't have any details. But if you have the yeah. same. Actually, we did this research. Show the same show, except you do one episode a night or mm-hmm. one episode a week. <laughs> Memory is up to 80 percent better for six months longer. Like, it's not even close. And the people, it's same show. We just watch one episode and go home. And unbelievably, memory's there. And if you think about it, what that allows you to do is, is it's recall as well. So we learn that recall is what leads to deeper memories. So if I do something every day for five days, in order to start that thing each day, I necessarily have to recall what I did the day before, which means I'm deepening the memory. So it's it's you can see how spacing starts to play with almost every other rule and starts to drive learning better than anything else we've seen. Wow. Wow. Uh, this has been just mind blowingly, uh, you know, cool <laughs> and, and amazing and and full of, of so much wisdom and insight. It's, I, I think people are going to absolutely love this. So uh, I have one final question, which I, I know you've heard me ask. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? <sighs> Resonance. It, I, I wasn't going to say that, but now that that's front in my mind, it's people you resonate with. There are some people that once they're in their passion, once they're doing their thing, your brain starts to fire like theirs. You don't have a choice. I remember I was just thinking of a story. There was this girl I went to school with growing up. And uh, this is going to sound horrible, but just wouldn't have been able to pick her out of a crowd. She was just one of the many people in my school. Cool. And then one day at talent show, she was up there playing the piano, which I didn't even know she played the piano. But as soon as she started playing, oh, my God, that room fell in love with her. And it wasn't because she was trying to impress anyone. It was because she was doing her thing. 
and you can't miss somebody when they're doing their thing. And we all started resonating with her. And in that moment, that was it. So I, whatever that thing is, whatever your thing is, if you do it, people resonate. That's what makes you unmistakable. Mm, amazing. Well, where can people find out more about you, uh, the book and everything else that you're up to? Oh, so the the book is available online. It's uh, Stop Talking, Start Influencing. It's on Amazon and all those places. Um, and then my, my website is is lmeglobal.net. Um, and that's where I just put up all my learning stuff. So all the videos I make and any fact sheets and stuff, I just throw them all up there. So if you want to do any more learning, there's some good good stuff there. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in-person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.